Well, with that, the title this morning is The Power of the Resurrection. Again, this is somewhat a reflection and meditation on a few different passages uh, in Scripture. So you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That's the first text we'll look at uh, with any uh, length. But well, wanted to meditate on the implications of what it is that Jesus is alive and what that means for us today. That this is not, as we opened last time, merely an historical event of the past that you can put aside, but this is a historical event that has implications all the way up to this moment, namely because Jesus is alive right now. And this is the power of the resurrection, the very power that will sustain and carry our whole Christian life. But reflecting on history, it was a week ago today marks the 100th anniversary of perhaps the most famous, the most published sermon of the 20th century. It was given by, at that time, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, Harry Emerson Fosdick. If you don't recognize the name, he was something of the spokesman of, spokesman of Protestant Christianity in the early 1900s. He twice appeared on the cover of Time magazine to tell you of his influence. And his title that almost to the day, a hundred years ago, of that sermon was this, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Now, that prompts the question, well, who are the fundamentalists? And you got to go back again to the early 1900s and understand some of the debates going on in churches, of Protestant churches, between fundamentalism and modernism, or fundamentalism and progressivism, and so forth. Fundamentalist, that was a pejorative term used by the, by the, the progressives against the, you might say, the conservatives, but it was against these churchmen and theologians and pastors. They were branded fundamentalists because they believed in what they called the fundamentals, namely these five key doctrines of the Christian faith, biblical inerrancy, Jesus' divinity, His virgin birth, Jesus' resurrection, and His bodily return. They were dear pastors who said, these things are being compromised, and the modernists branded them and say, oh, you're being fundamentalists. You're being factious. The progressives challenged each of those doctrines, as did this preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick. See, to be clear, he did not want the fundamentalists to win. He understood the fundamentalists then would fracture all of Christianity, because he himself, Fosdick, did not hold to these truths. And he particularly loathed the thought, and that's what he made so clear in that sermon, loathed the thought that Christians would divide over doctrine, they would divide over teaching. He laments that it's such an embarrassing shame, quote, that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great needs, end quote. You see, those five doctrines we listed biblical inerrancy, Jesus' divinity, the virgin birth, Jesus' resurrection, key here, and His bodily return, he would say none of those really matter to the Christian faith, certainly to the Christian ethic, he said. Near the end of the sermon, Fosdick contends, quote, that is the trouble with this whole business. So much of it does not matter. And there is one thing that does matter more than anything else in all the world, he claims, that men in their personal lives and in their social relationships should know Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, Removed from the context of that sermon, the very end of what he said, I think I would agree with. There's nothing more important than, than for them to know Christ. But the issue is, Pastor Fosdick, who is the Christ you're introducing them to? Is your Christ God? Is the Jesus of Fosdick, was he miraculously born of a virgin? 
Did his Jesus walk on water and heal lepers and die for sin? Did his Jesus rise from the dead? To really to the question, is your Jesus alive, Mr. Fosdick? To all this, I think he would say, no, and I don't think it matters, is what he would tell us. As long as Christians live in love, oh, but we see it does matter. And it doesn't matter merely whether or not that's whether or not it is true. And it is. We talked about that last time. It matters because it's an historical fact of history. But even more than this, not only is it historically true from history that Jesus is God, that he was literally God on earth, and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead, but we want to consider the question now this morning: but so what? What does it matter? if those historical events actually happened? What does it matter for now? What do those historical sureties, even if I believe they happen, what do they matter for me 2,000 years later from when those events took place? And that's our subject this morning. Why does Jesus' resurrection, His from the grave bodily historical resurrection, why does that matter for you in this moment? But the truth is, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, and as if that's something that's passed and happened and gone, but He is risen, and that means He's alive right now, and that matters in every aspect of life. And you'll see that matters in every part of your Christian life. That's what we're going to consider this morning. For without His life, without His living, without His resurrection, you have no life. Your Christian life depends on His living, His death-defeating power of the Almighty Christ, because it's unstoppable. So, the word is, rely on Jesus' resurrecting power to sustain your whole Christian life from the beginning all the way through the middle to the very end. You have no life and no hope if Jesus is not alive, but He is alive, brothers and sisters, and He's carrying us all the way home from beginning to end. That's the word this morning. Well, let's see it play out in each of those stages of our Christian life. Let's see the power of the resurrection first in the beginning. In the beginning of the Christian life, for it is the very power for overcoming unbelief. And we see that here in Ephesians 1, at the end of the chapter 2, into Ephesians chapter 2. Spiritual life begins at spiritual conception, that is, regeneration, when the life of the risen Christ enters the heart. And it's only the power of Jesus' life that can do that, as we'll see here. So as we turn then to the latter half of Ephesians chapter 1, we encounter this prayer request that the Apostle Paul has for the Ephesian church. Here's the things he's begging the Father in heaven for them, what he wants for them. He says, for this reason, verse 15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. What does he ask? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So as we come to verse 17, now we hear the request. What does he pray for them? What does he ask? He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Boil it down. What does he want for them? He wants them to know God. He wants them, as we'll see, to then know the power of God. He wants them to know God better as He truly is. And if they were to know God and the revelation of God, that means they would know something more of these three glorious gifts that Christ has given His church. So as we go on to verses 18 and 19, 
They're going to know God more by knowing these gifts he's given. And what are the gifts? He lists three of them. Let's look at verse 18. That they would, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know. So they're going to know three things. One, what is the hope to which he has called you? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, and this is our focus this morning, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Again, for our study this morning, we're just going to explore that third one so directly. We can't unpack all of this text. Go listen to old sermons on Ephesians. You can find them on our website, gracebiblerichmond.org. But here, we want to focus on the power, for it so ties to Jesus' resurrection and how that ties to us today. Because even as he goes on, notice, he says, I want you to understand how great this power is that God works according to His great might. And then he explains, well, what kind of powerful working does God do? How powerful is God? Verse 20. What kind of power is it? It's the kind of power God has when he worked in Christ, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What kind of power does he want us to understand more that's at our disposal for in Christ? It's the kind of power that can make the dead alive. It's the kind of power that can take nothing and make it something. It's the kind of power that takes the lifeless, the breathless, and gives them entirely full and true life. In that way, you see, it's the very power of God in creation itself, except in this case, it's a recreation, a regeneration, new life. And more than this, most expressly, it's a power that raised Christ, yes, from the dead, but also then seated him, it's so strong, it seated him at the right hand of God, the point is, above all earthly powers. Look at verse 20 again. It's a power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The implication of that, that means he's now seated far above all rule, authority, and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's the point of being higher than anybody else? Think of this as a game of king of the hill. You know, where somebody gets on the top of the hill and people try and run and push them off. This is a cosmic king of the heavenly hill, and his name is Jesus Christ, such that no power can come against him. By being at the top and seated over all, that means he's overcome them all, he's conquered them all, he's stronger than them all. There's no power like his. There's no power that can rival him. There's no power that can rival his life-giving, resurrecting power. He wins every time. Okay. Well, how does it relate to us? Why is it good to know that's available to us? Or how does that work in our life? Well, what Paul wants to show you, because maybe that sounds very uh, entertaining to you. Wow, that kind of power? That's available for a Christian? What Paul unveils next is to show you it's already at work in your life if you trust in Christ. Don't lose sight of that. Because he turns on to verse 2, or excuse me, he turns on into chapter 2. And what do we see? He reminds us of our spiritual state before Christ stepped in to our life. And where does he begin? He begins where we were. We were dead. Verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived like the world. You loved sin. You were dead in your sin. 
You were following the prince of the power of the air. You thought you were indulging yourself. You thought you were your own master, going after your own preferences. Really, you were just marching to the beat of the drum of your master, the devil himself. And what did that look like? He goes on in verse 3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind." We were spiritually dead, full of sin, rebellion. And for that, judgment's coming. He says at the end of verse 3, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That means children of wrath. We were children destined to God's judgment. But praise God for verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Point is, you were dead, you had nothing to offer, you were just a minus to him. Nevertheless, his mercy and love are so great, what does God do? Note this connection. What does he do even though you were dead in your sins? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, but together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Notice the connection. You weren't just made alive, you were made alive together with Christ. What is the implication then if Christ is not alive? Keep reading, on to verse 6. He's made us alive together with Christ, and correspondingly, He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you see the connection still? Look at those verbs. Sorry to be a grammar nerd on you, but we have a written text, so we must look at these things. Look at verse 6 again. What two things has God done for us with Christ? He's raised us up with him and seated us with him. Where did we hear about being raised and being seated at the Father's right hand? Look back to chapter 1, verse 20. That God worked in Christ when he did what? Raised him from the dead and seated him by the right hand in the heavenly places. What was happening in verse 20 of chapter 1? He was describing the kind of power that God has, the kind of power to raise the dead. And what do we see as we turn to chapter 2? You were dead in your sins, and the power of God intervened in Christ to make you alive and seated you at the Father's right hand with Jesus. Such that now, if you're in Christ, try and wrap your mind around this. The Father, who loves nothing more than His Son, looks at you like His Son. That didn't happen because of you. That happened to you by the very power of Christ's resurrection. It took the power of Christ to raise the dead and also then to overcome our dead hearts, to dispel the unbelief. That's the life-giving, resurrecting power of Christ unleashed in our Christian lives right now. And that's true for us even still as God is overcoming sin, overcoming unbelief in our own heart. We'll talk more about this. But as you go through the rest of the book of Ephesians, again, go back to those sermons, right? Understand the power of God in overcoming our unbelief is not like a jump start in a car. If you got a faulty battery or a bad alternator, maybe you can jump start the car. But then you're going to drive for a little while and it's eventually going to run out of juice or you're going to need a battery or something like this. The power of God does not just jump start your faith. It sustains you throughout your whole Christian life such that... Just surveying a bit of Ephesians, we see 
His life-giving power, what it does is it resides in you. Paul ties all of these things, these commands, these way of living for the Christian to God's power. When he commands us, for example, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says that we are going to work a host of good works in our Christian life. But that's by the power of God. We are going to remain humble and unified with the church body, but that's only by the power of God, Ephesians chapter 4. Or we're going to serve Christ's church with how he's been gifted to us or how he's gifted us for service, Ephesians chapter 4. Or by his power, we're able to put off sin and repent from sinful habits and patterns, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. Or we're going to resist and overcome evil powers and temptations. But how are we going to do that? By our own armor, our own strength? No, the point in Ephesians 6, but by the very armor and power of God. The Christian life rests on the power of God that changes our hearts, brings us to faith, and carries us from death to life. So then, to ask that question of ourselves, how is your spiritual strength? What is your spiritual physical fitness like this morning? And perhaps no better barometer might be than just in your reliance upon Him in prayer. A true reliance upon him faith probably looks no better than in praying, depending upon him. And not as we saw in Matthew's gospel, it's not the amount of our praying, how long we pray, but are you dependent? Well, I ask you, do you pray? Are we praying? Are we gathering for prayer? Just to use one example. So some from the church gather on Wednesday night to pray together. It's invited to all of us, but not many are there. Or if we're having a Sunday evening fellowship and there's a baptism, this place is packed. But if we are only going to pray, not many are here. Why not? Is it because we don't think we need Him? Is it because we don't think we need to pray? Or is it because we're dependent on our own powers, our own plans, our abilities, our own strength? Or is it because we're not sure it even matters? As if, is Christ even alive? Did He even rise from the dead anyways? But of course, we saw it last week, and we know this is the whole kernel of the Christian life, isn't it? He is alive. He is working. And this invitation is, depend upon me. I invite you, depend upon me. I intervene with my life in you. Now, depend upon me. Otherwise, we go out on our own, and you know this, we're just so then handicapped spiritually, aren't we, as we rely on our own powers, our own strength. If you, might, if you have any success, it only lasts for a while because you just you wear out, don't you? I know this example of my own life recently in a physical way. I felt the difference is recently I was trying to cut some holes in my ceiling on purpose. And at first, to mitigate the mess, I was just using a little hand drywall saw. It got the job done, sure, but it was slow. My shoulders tired, and they ached, burned. And so for the next bit, I grabbed my reciprocating power saw. That thing cut through the ceiling like scissors through Christmas paper. It was amazing. And that power, it was just waiting there on the floor if I was willing to get off the stool and grab the power tool. In an analogy, we too have tremendous spiritual power at our fingertips, but we so often forget or we don't realize it or maybe we don't believe it really works, and so we just keep doing it the old same way we've been doing it. 
Well, Paul is praying for his church, for us then, how great is the power of Christ? It can make the dead alive, and that's what it's done in your heart. Do not forget. Do not go back to your own powers, but ask and act in my name. Because he will. Why? Because he's alive. But it's not only in the beginning, of course. We're already alluding to this. But it's the power of God at work in the resurrection to sustain us through our whole Christian life. And we see that in Romans 6. So turn with me there to our passage where we open this morning in the Scripture reading to Romans chapter 6. For it's by His resurrecting power we find the only way. We find our only power, our only ability to fight sin rests in Christ. Now, to sum up where we are in the book of Romans, of course, we're getting toward the middle of the book, but the first two chapters are all about how everybody's a sinner, whether you're an out-and-out pagan or you're a self-righteous religious person, person, you're a sinner, you're under God's judgment, you're captivated by sin. The hope and glory is, is that there's a gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners, He was buried and rose from the dead, such that if you trust Christ, that His death was for you, then your debt was paid, and that His resurrection was for you, God now sees you as righteous, even though you were not by the way you lived. And that's all by Christ's work, not yours. We say then it's by grace through faith. It's not what you do. That's the glory of the gospel. However then, as we turn to chapter 6, Paul anticipates how others might object to the, you might call, the unintended consequences of preaching a religion that says you're saved by no work of your own but all the work of Christ. And what's the problem? Well, if it's not by my works, then people will just do whatever they want. They'll indulge. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If we're all saved by grace, it comes as a gift if it's through faith. And if we're saved by no efforts of our own, no righteous deeds of our own, it's not about getting up to the 51% better than most people marker to get into heaven, and it's all by what Christ has done, why bother with works? Why bother with being good? Why bother with repentance? What's the point of doing anything? Can't I just sin all the more and it doesn't matter? Well, as verse 2 opens, Paul answers that question with a resounding no way. Verse 2, by no means. And why not? For how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Well, that's a good point, Paul. When in the world did I die to sin? What are you talking about? And this is where Paul leans on this spiritual truth, that by faith we are united to Christ. As we trust Christ, we are united to Him, such that His death counts for us, but then also His life counts for us. He gets our sin, we get His righteousness. He gets our death, we get His life. So when did you die to sin? You died to sin when you professed faith in Him and you trusted Him. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? In this case, Paul's using baptism as a shorthanded way to speak about when you came to faith. We might say whenever you were at a service and you trusted Christ, or you raised your hand, or you walked the aisle, or you came forward. Well, in the New Testament church, it was simply when you were baptized, because the pattern in the New Testament was you believe, you got in the water. 
That's how it worked. There were essentially no unbaptized Christians. It would be an oxymoron in the first century. So, when Paul references baptism here, he has in mind when you professed faith publicly, when you came to faith in Christ. But then he leans on what that picture of baptism communicates, what it symbolizes, namely that you were united to Jesus by faith. And so he goes on to explore it, and what we find is that that means Christ's resurrecting life also counts for you. Look at verse 4. When you, excuse me, when we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The very act of baptism pictures your death. You go under the waters of judgment. But then it also pictures you coming up to a changed new life, just like Christ when he came out of the tomb. That's why we say in our very baptism practice, actually, often when you're, we put the brother or sister and plunge them all the way under the water, what do we say? Buried with him in the likeness of his death. And then we say as we pull them out of the water to walk with him in newness of life. You're dead and you were raised because Jesus died and he rose. And it's not just a coincidence. It's not just an analogy. But the very life of Jesus is what gives you life. And this is his point. This is why you can't go on sinning and truly be a Christian. Why not? Because you cannot have Jesus' death count for you when he deals with the penalty of your sin and not be changed by his life. They go together. Death and then life. For Jesus and the gospel and for you as you trust him. Verse 5, he explores this further. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's not merely future. He's not merely talking about our future reality when we will rise up from the tomb. He's talking about the reality now. If Jesus lives in you now, you'll be changed now. It impacts your life now. Well, then what will that impact be? He sums it up in verses 6 and 7. You will no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That was the result of this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the reality now. If you're united with Jesus, as real as his death and resurrection are, as real are the new life in you. Such that, what then are we commanded to do? What's the immediate implication of this? Because he gives a command at the end of this paragraph, verse 11. The first command, in light of the reality, you've been united to Christ's death and his life. The first command is, you need to think differently. He commands you, you need to think differently about yourself. You need to think not just about you, you need to think first about Christ, because that tells you everything you need to know about you now. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, but in Christ Jesus. This is the implication, brothers and sisters. This is what's true about you. As assuredly Christ is dead and alive, so you have died to sin and you live. 
So when the temptation to sin feels very strong, right, getting in those old patterns, you feel like, I can't resist, I can only give in, the lust pulls so hard, the anxiety weighs so heavy, your resistance to it is about to give out, and you feel hopeless to resist. What needs to happen? You need to stop right there, and you need to think, what has Christ said about me? What has Christ done and said? Because he died for my sins, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive now in me to free me from this sin. So, brothers and sisters, I know those desires and those temptations, I know they're telling you one thing. They're selling you a line. They're telling you a story, maybe about how irresistible this sin is and how maybe no one will know about it and how maybe it won't really matter and how pointless resistance remains. But no, that means you're listening to yourself. You're listening to your old pre-Christ self who was spiritually dead. That's a story and a narrative in your mind that has forgotten Jesus is alive and he's redeemed me and he lives in me and he's putting sin to death in me and I'm no longer enslaved to sin. How do I know this? Because Jesus is alive and he said so. By the authority of Christ, tell yourself the truth. Don't listen to your temptations. Tell yourself the truth. You're dead to sin now. Sin may come calling. Sin may leave you all kinds of messages. They may send alerts to you that feel like those amber alerts that go off in your phone and you can never escape them. No, you need to then intervene and say, no, Jesus is alive and he said, you're canceled, sin. You're done. You've no authority over me anymore. I'm not going to answer anymore to your calls because the risen Christ said so. Consider yourself indeed dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because Jesus is alive. It makes all the difference. So then what's the so what? How does that play out? It begins with changed thinking, and that results in a changed life. Look at verses 12 and following. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Don't let sin rule over you anymore. Why? Because it doesn't have to. Now, we'll struggle, yes. We gotta go on, flip a page, or look the next page over, and look at Romans 7. This doesn't mean we won't struggle with sin, but your struggle is not hopeless anymore. Because Jesus is alive and well and in you by faith. You don't have to obey it anymore. Really, it's dead to you. But it's not only that you would put off doing the wrong thing, but you would be changed and alive to God in obedience. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Not because hypothetically or let's pretend. No, that's reality now. You have been brought from death to life, so let's live it. Give your members your life to God for obedience, instruments for righteousness. And again, why must this be? Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion, won't rule, won't be your master. Why not? Because you're not under law, but under grace. Because he's forgiven you. He's given you his life. By the authority of the resurrected Jesus and by the power of his life, sin will not reign over you, brother or sister. Don't believe any other story. And so let's live like it, right? Let's step out in obedience. Let's preach the truth to our hearts and the hearts of one another. Because now, against sin, you can finally do something about it. Before, you were powerless to resist. But now you've been set free to obey 
How do I know it's true? Because God is alive. Again, that's something you could never do before. That's something you could never do until Jesus, for one, died and rose and intervened then in your heart. But now you've been united with him. So that sin-conquering power that was in Jesus is now in you. And now we're called to live in light of him. In other words, is Jesus alive or isn't he? And if he is, that means you're dead to sin and alive to God, free from sin's power, and so let's obey him like it. Well, that'll bring us then to the end. And here's the power of Jesus' resurrection as we turn now to 1 Peter chapter 1. In the power of the resurrection, we find the power for getting to heaven, to getting to the end of our journey of faith intact, making it to the glory at the end. It comes only because Jesus rose from the dead and he sustains us. And that's perhaps no more clear than in the Bible than in this text in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 Peter opens with praising God, blessing his name, because God's given us new life. He's caused us to be born again. So we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, what has he done? Why are we praising him? He's caused us to be born again. He's given us life. To be born a second time, right? And not just to have life now, but it's a living hope. There's a life to come in this. It's for something future. And what is that? He'll talk about it. It's an inheritance. Ultimately, it's heaven. It's seeing your Savior face to face in mercy. Enjoying Him forever. The one you were created for. But you've probably heard it before. When the Bible talks about hope, like a living hope, this isn't like, oh, I took an exam. I didn't really study for it. Boy, I hope I got a good grade. This is a hope that is certain. It is sure. You're just waiting till it comes. Well, how do we know this hope is sure? Look what it's founded upon, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, what has God done? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. But where or how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His own coming out of the tomb is the very cause and ground of our own hope. And that's a hope that's not going to fail or change or fade because his life never does because he conquered death and he lives. That's why Peter can talk about it's such a sure thing. Tell us more about this living hope, Pete. Look at verse 4. What are you being born to? What's this living hope grounded by and won by the resurrection of Jesus? It's an inheritance that is imperishable, he says, verse 4, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's so sure it's imperishable. That means it cannot be corrupted. It cannot wear out. It cannot spoil. It's not going to rot. It's not going to rust. It's not going to expire before you get there. Second, it's a hope that's so sure it's going to remain undefiled. It can't be tarnished. There's no unforeseen circumstances that will corrupt it. You might, for example, try and make a real estate investment, say at a beach or at a harbor. You buy this house. You're hoping you make money off it, so and so forth, and then the the harbor's overrun with crime, trash is everywhere, everybody's moving out of the area, your whole investment plummets because nobody wants that property. That will never happen with this inheritance. 
But third, it's also unfading in its glory. It remains pristine, perfect in its glint and glimmer and brilliance to never wear out. Again, it's hard to even say what it'll be like because everything in this world fades, but not this. And why not? Why won't this inheritance grow old? Why won't this inheritance fade out? Why won't this inheritance eventually die? Well, where is it grounded and built upon? The imperishable, undefiled, unfading, risen life of Jesus Christ. That's why. He lives to sustain it the whole way. And that's why it is sure. And He even sustains it for you who look to Him. And in that way, it's a heavenly guarantee. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is keeping it because God's power has seen it through as He raised Jesus from the dead. Wow, that sounds like a great hope. Can't wait to get there. Why does he tell us about it now? To get you there. So that your faith wouldn't give out. That is, how does this sure hope impact our life right now? Well, Peter explores that with us by considering probably the toughest part of this life. Trials. Difficulties. Look at verse 6. He says, In this, talking about the sure salvation, you rejoice, you have joy, but but look, it's not in their circumstances. You have joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So notice somehow there is a joy they have and there's a grief they have, and they can go together until we get home. But the point is, even though you are grieved, you're afflicted, you're challenged by trials and difficulty in this life, because of the sure resurrection of Jesus, you have a joy that nobody can take away. Because there's an inheritance that nobody can touch, because nobody can touch the life of Jesus Christ. That is, how then should we think about these trials? Verse 7, like what's the point of them? He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation. That is the revealing of Jesus when you get to see Him face to face. What's the point of these trials in our life then? They are preparing you for that day when you get to meet Jesus, the revelation of Christ face to face. These trials actually fuel your hope and prepare you to enjoy that final day far more. And that way it's like a wedding You can imagine the bride coming through the double doors behind you there, being escorted by her father, and she's all dressed up in her finest, beautified in every way. But why do they do that? Why do they come out looking so beautiful and and pretty? Why don't they just come out in their pajamas without any makeup on and their hair undone? Is it because the husband's having, or the husband to be, having second thoughts? Like, ooh, that's what she looks like in the morning? Never mind. I hope not, right? See, Jesus owned you. He bought you. He delivered you. If you're in Christ, that's already happened. That's already taken place. He's not wavering his commitment. Well, then why these trials? He's preparing you for that day so you'd be beautiful for him and you can delight him together in righteousness. He's burning off all of the other things that we love too much because it's not for our good. He's making us beautiful for Him. He's already committed. And even these trials and difficulties are just making us love Him more. And also, they're preparing us to long for Him more because we know this place is not our home. This is not what we're waiting for. Such that, verses 8 and 9, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because you're going to obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But how is this joy so unassailable, so untouchable, so insuppressible? How can we be sure it's all going to happen? Because Jesus is now alive. And he loves his bride, and he's going to bring his bride home. Even if we came out in our pajamas. And so then the call for us, what do we do with that now? Again, notice where Peter begins, he begins with how you think. Where you set your hope, where you set your focus. In light of the resurrection, your focus needs to be on when you get to see your resurrected Jesus. Verse 13. Therefore, he says, in view of this great salvation to come is the idea. Prepare your minds for action. The, literally, it's girding up the loins of your mind where they had their long robes and they would hitch them up and tie them up so then they can run and be active. Well, you need to do that with your mind. You need to tie in the loose ends so you can be, as he goes on, sober-minded and focused like a laser. And what will you then do? To set your hope fully on the grace, the gift that we brought to you at the revelation, that is, when you get to see Jesus revealed. There's nothing better than this. There's no greatness and thing to anticipate more than this because there's nothing that's so good by comparison and so sure as this. And how can we be sure? Because Jesus is alive and the tomb was empty. But that hope is only a sure bet, something to look forward to if he is alive. That's only a sure bet if he defeated sin and defeated death and came out of the tomb. And more than that, that's only something to take hope in for us if he's alive and he's going to equip us to get us there. We need him and his power all the way home. But we only have hope if he's alive. And that's the glory is he is. He defeated sin and death to the full and he rose from the dead to prove it. And so, because he rose from the dead, then, there's a power out there that can overcome the hardest of unbelieving hearts, the greatest of scoffers. Think about what we've seen even in Matthew's gospel over this past couple years, to see even the most righteous of Pharisees, self-righteous, that is, come to faith. There's hope even for your own heart, your own soul this morning, in the power of the risen Christ to intervene. He will take you. And maybe he's breaking that hard heart now and he's calling you, just come to me, I will receive you, come as you are, I will forgive you, I will give you my life, I will change you. Maybe you can't figure out, I don't know how I can let go of that sin, I, can, I don't know how I can be changed. Well, that's the point. You say, I can't, but you can, and you come to him. He won't put you aside. There's hope for any we speak to about Christ. His power is stronger. So we got to preach, we got to tell the good news, and then we're praying, oh God, work it. This is not by us and our arguments and our power. There's also a power then to overcome the most ingrained habitual sins of your life. How do I know this? Because Jesus is alive. And finally, you can live in that power all the way home because this hope is sure. Again, how do I know this? It won't expire. It won't pass away because Jesus is alive. That's the power of the resurrected Jesus. That's our assured hope. It's going to carry us all the way home through even the toughest of trials and obediences and such that perhaps no final charge can be as fitting as this one from Hebrews chapter 12, where you have the example of those who 
hoped in the resurrection before us, this great cloud of witnesses. They were faithful. They lived a faithful life. And then he gives us Christ's own example as well, who for the joy that was set before him at the resurrection endured obedience even when it was hard. And so we hear this final word. How do we live in light of that sure joy of the resurrection to come? Here it is, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Put it all aside and let us then run with endurance this race that's set before us. But not depending on our own strength, right? Where do we keep our eyes? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, as we imitate his own example, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, because he knew joy in the resurrection was on the other side, where he would be seated at the right hand of God. So, brothers and sisters, he is risen, and he will raise you up with him, so let's follow him, putting aside every sin, running our course with endurance, because there's the joy that comes, and it's sure, because he's alive. Let's pray to him.